0: We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
1: I'm Kate White, the author of The Gutsy Girl Handbook and the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan magazine women are 20% less likely than men to be given the kind of glamour opportunities that lead to promotions. So if you're afraid to raise your hand and they're less likely to tap you, you've got a problem. And it shocks me to see millennial women wrestling with this, but they do. And I'm not 100% sure where that comes from. I think some of it is still maybe subtle messaging that comes through in our culture. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger.
0: New York Times bestselling author Kate White is the former editor-in-chief of Cosmopolitan. Her influential words have led countless women to keep striving for success. Heard you said you felt socially awkward when you were younger and you felt weird about introducing yourself.
1: How did you get more comfortable doing so? I would say it's probably just trial and error. The more you do it the easier it gets. And I had to kind of force myself to be out in the world to meet people, to give speeches and the like. And eventually you reach that that threshold. So it's no longer difficult.
0: Right. You found out you were passed over for a major promotion earlier in your career because you were a woman. Tell us about that.
1: Wow. I had been working at this magazine. It was a newspaper supplement, but it was really uh, popular in a lot of newspapers. And my boss left to become the editor of GQ. And I I loved him, and I felt bad about his leaving. But he said, Kate, look, you're going to be able to run the magazine while they search for a replacement, and you're one of the candidates. So I was really psyched. And after getting over some initial nervousness, I discovered I love being in charge, love being the boss, loving having the whole magazine for me to decide what was going to be the content. And I didn't get the job after three months. It went to a guy from the outside from Time Magazine. And I just accepted, Okay, I was only in my early 30s. But later, my old boss took me out to lunch and he said, look, I, I can't ever say this in a court of law, but you had the best proposal, apparently, and you didn't get the job because you're a woman. And in those days, this was the 80s, you just sort of said, okay, that happens. But for me, it was a pivotal, wonderful turning point where I decided to make some changes. I decided to go back in women's magazines where I knew there would be more opportunities. And perhaps the best lesson was later on, I realized, part of – The mistake I made, and it might have played a role in my not getting the job, wasn't simply because I was a woman, but I didn't go after it with the ferociousness I should have.
0: What do you mean by that?
1: Well, instead of, you know, I was asked to do a proposal, which I did. And yet I stayed in my office every week and worked on putting out the best magazine. But I never went to the publisher who was in charge of the hiring and saying, let me present my proposal to you. Let me tell you what I can do. I said I should have said, let me have a weekly meeting with you so you'll know what I'm up to. I did a real good girl thing of holding back and not putting myself forward. So even though maybe being a woman had played into my not getting the job, I think being a good girl probably hurt my chances just as much. What do you mean a good girl? A good girl just holds back. She waits for opportunities to present themselves to her. She thinks that you don't ask for a promotion, you get tapped for it. You don't take that empty chair at a meeting because it probably belongs to somebody else. You don't negotiate for a starting salary because oh, you, you don't wanna get start off on the wrong foot. And I really look back at my career and see that everything good came when I was gutsier.
0: How come women hold back like this, or some women?
1: Yeah, well, certainly uh, for baby boomers, it was a message you got growing up from parents, from from your teachers. There was a lot of interesting research that showed that, for instance, in school, boys got called on or well, girls got called on when they raised their hand. And you were told the teacher isn't going to – have you present an idea until you've raised your hand. But they overrode that for boys. So boys would just shout out the answer. And rather than the teachers saying, no, 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 you've got to raise your hand, like they often did for girls, they would let the boy do it. So all that messaging, that's just one example, played into the idea of girls growing up being afraid to jump into the puddle with their party shoes on and everything else. What's interesting to me today as I talk to millennial women, is how so many of them still, despite their outer confidence, feel nervous sometimes about raising their hand for an opportunity. And the problem is, uh, I just read a study the other day that said that women are 20% less likely than men to be given the kind of glamour opportunities that lead to promotions. So if you're afraid to raise your hand and they're less likely to tap you, you've got a problem. And it shocks me to see millennial women wrestling with this, but they do. And I'm not 100% sure where that comes from. I think some of it is still maybe subtle messaging that comes through in our culture.
0: Why do you think good things came to you when you did put up your hand?
1: Because it showed you're passionate. And what I found as a boss is you want to reward things to passionate people. I never gave a promotion to somebody who didn't ask for it because it said to me, they're conflicted, they're unsure, they're not passionate enough. And I think other people operate that way, whether consciously or not. So when you are gutsy, it it shows that you want it and you're hungry. When you're gutsy, it means you're willing to bring up big ideas, think of big ideas, and those are what ultimately the great bosses love. When you walk in there with something that is going to drive profitability, save money, or just create buzz, a good boss likes that, and it doesn't come from a good girl.
0: Did you get rejected, some of your
1: ideas? A uh, few at Cosmo, yeah. Uh, but at Cosmo, if I wasn't getting spanked uh, periodically by my boss, I wasn't doing my job. But I have to say as I look back at my career when I was doing uh, the Gutsy Girl Handbook, I could not find many examples of where gutsiness got in my way. If it, And it almost always advanced things. The mistake I think sometimes women make – and when I'm out speaking, sometimes later women will come up to me and say – you know, my boss is threatened by my good ideas, my my gutsy ideas. A lot of it is them not under looking at the culture and being aware of what the right gutsy idea is going to be and sort of understanding that you've got to make your boss feel you're doing something for him or her. So, So I would say the only caveat I would make to being gutsy is know what kind of envelopes you can push. Sometimes if you're working too much against the culture, no boss is going to like it.
0: Do you have any specific tips on how you can figure that out to make sure you're in line with?
1: I'm a big believer in having an educated gut. The woman who transformed Cosmo in the 60s and turned it into a billion dollar brand, Helen Gurley Brown, she always told me she trusted her gut. But I think today, it's just so smart to pay attention to soft data and, and hard data and really try to analyze it. And when you do that, you can start to get an understanding of what's going to work someplace. And a lot of the big ideas I presented in my career really came from looking at data. And that makes it easier when you're pitching an idea to your boss where you say, look, I've noticed this spike here and it's telling us something and I would love us to do this (laughs) early in my career when I was a young feature writer at Glamour Magazine, I heard about this attempt to find the Loch Ness Monster with sonar. And I burst into my boss's office, the editor-in-chief, and I said, Ruth, I want to go on the ship with a scientist. And she said, okay, but what's in it for the reader? And there was nothing in it for the reader. And I remember saying, what if I sleep with the Loch Ness Monster, put a twist on the story? But that question was really an important one. What's in it for the reader? So when you have gutsy ideas, you have to ask, what's in it for my boss? What's in it for the company? That's going to matter.
0: What's your advice for women who feel funny selling themselves, so to speak?
1: I would say that it may sound funny to you, but generally if you sell yourself in the right way, when you make it about them as much as possible, and not just you, people like it. They like it when, for instance, one of the best things I, pieces of advice I ever heard indirectly was when I was up for my first editor-in-chief job, I wanted it so badly because it was a parenting magazine and I had a new baby and my boss was giving me a hard time about leaving at a reasonable hour. So I thought, hey, if I'm head of a parenting magazine, no one's going to complain that I go home at a certain hour to be with my kid. So at the end of the interview, they said, do you have any more questions? And I asked some good ones because I came prepared. I said, no more questions, but there's just one thing I, I want to say. I, I would love this job. I think I can do a fabulous job for you, and I'd love the opportunity to prove it. It was almost like Pentecostal tongues. I was like, whoa, what words came out of my mouth? And later, after they hired me, one of the people who was in that room that day said, we love that you asked for the business. And so I had, you know, talked myself up, but in a way that made it about them, let me show what I can do for you. So you have to keep bringing it back to what you can do for them. And that helps you get a little a, a little bit of your head, and I think it makes it more comfortable. Comfortable for you. I think even when you give a presentation, which is so scary and was hard for me to do early on, the actress Natalie Dormer once said to me that when she had to audition, an older actor told her, think about what you can do for them. And so instead of thinking, oh my, you know, my presentation sucks, I'm so nervous, think I've got something here that they're going to be able to leave the room knowing and it's going to be of value to them. And so the more you can think about them, I think the less awkward and clumsy it makes you feel.
0: So you got Divorced in your early thirties, would you share what that experience was like?
1: Ouch. Well, at the time, because it was not as usual, I, I felt embarrassed. I mean, who gets divorced in their 30s? You had heard of people getting divorced in their 50s, or 40s. But I think the biggest issue for me was just the financial one. I had planned a bit. I th- saw myself living in a dual income situation. And I also, I had given up a nice apartment in New York City real estate's a lot. But it was a great time for me in terms of money, ultimately, because I realized, hey, I might be on my own forever. And I have to start thinking that way. And uh, I had a blind date with a guy one night. And I I said to him, because he was in finance, I said, do you know any really good accountants? And he said, yeah, I know this one great guy. And I went to this guy and I said, I'd love to talk to you about being my accountant. I think I only made like $50,000 then. And he said, um, you know, People I work with make over a million dollars a year, but there's something about you that I'm really inspired by, and I think one day you're going to be one of those people. So he took me on, and that was the beginning of me really wanting to take control of my of my money and my situation and also made me realize I probably had to give up at the time on the idea of – just uh, being a freelancer and really pursue the idea of becoming an editor-in-chief. So the divorce in the end was a good thing. Uh, The guy wasn't worth much. And I married a fabulous guy afterwards. But those four years of being on my own really got me thinking a lot about money and what I wanted. What's your advice for other women going through a similar experience? Just like everything – for me, I think a lot of it is stepping back and looking, being willing to look at failure in the face. When I was at Cosmo and covers didn't do well, it would have been easy to think, well, hey, next month is another month. But I always threw them down on the floor and did what I call the rug test, where I would put the loser in the middle and some winners up at top and other kind of losers at the bottom. fortunately, my winners greatly outnumbered my losers. And I would look for Any kind of common denominators. And sometimes I would see stuff that I hadn't seen six weeks before when I was putting it to press. And I think you have to do that with any kind of failure, not wallow in it, not ruminate, but ask what was going on here. Studies show that people who are high achievers tend to dismiss some of their failures and assign blame to something else. And of course, you have your friends saying, oh, he was a jerk, you know, geez, you know, forget about it. But look, if you've had more than one bad relationship, you're the, common, you're, you're the common denominator. So as much as you can learn from it and use it as a launching pad for a fresh new adventure in life.
0: We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council.
1: Drive time, gym time, anytime. WSJ Podcasts. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal.
0: You were able to have a successful side hustle writing novels while still excelling at your day job at Cosmo. How did you do that?
1: Well, I just felt because being an editor-in-chief was a precarious situation. It was one of those fields where people tended to get fired in their 50s. And that didn't happen for me. I managed to leave on my own terms, but I wanted some protection. I also loved the idea of writing murder mysteries I had since I was younger and I didn't want to give it up. So I used a technique a great time management expert taught me once. It's very simple, but when you want to do something that seems daunting and your schedule doesn't seem to allow it, slice the salami. So I got up Saturday and Sunday mornings and I wrote for about two hours before my kids got up. And then when I was at Cosmo, I wrote for about 45 minutes before my staff got in. And the pages added up. And I was just religious about doing that every day. And it helped in the beginning to write less time than that. In the beginning, I wrote only 15 minutes a day. That was the salami slice for me.
0: What's your advice for women who want to start their own side hustle?
1: (laughs) My advice would be, first of all, go for it, but don't cheat on your job. It's just they find out that works against you. They can pick up on that your energy isn't 100 percent there. If before you take it too far down the road, be sure you're not romanticizing it to the point where working for a great company really can be worth so much. I worked for a fantastic company, the Hearst Corporation. It had a great pension plan when I was there. It had a fantastic CEO who I just adored. My boss, Kathy Black, was a terrific boss. And I'm really glad I kept the hot side hustle for later because I had the opportunity to build wealth while I was younger and then be able to leave and not have to worry about about all of that. So don't romanticize your side hustle and if you really feel that it's 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 great, get a plan going. Really get your ducks in a row to make sure you can do it.
0: Cosmo circulation exploded when you were editor-in-chief. <laughs> How did you make sure you were financially rewarded for that, or were you?
1: Yeah, I th- I think I was. There were a couple times I got some really great gifts, and to me that was a sign like, well, if they're giving you really great gifts, that means that maybe they're, they're guilty, <laughs> they feel guilty. But overall, I tried to ask for what I wanted. I, I'd i learned over time that negotiating really works, and sometimes I, I made a few mistakes doing it. I probably went too far in what I was asking and hadn't done enough research to, to think about the zone of possible agreement. But I almost think it's better to err on that side. And I, I'm just a big believer in negotiating.
0: So would you negotiate every year for a bonus or a different Well, in that range? field,
1: what was great is if you can get contracts. And one of my contracts, one of the last one, was five years. And that's great because it really offers you a lot of security. So you're giving up the opportunity to negotiate again in two years in exchange for having some security uh, but, I, but I felt it was worth it, and uh, probably the best thing I did because a lot of my bonuses were based on newsstand sales. And when I was there, those were huge. I mean, things have changed because of uh, what's happening with print. But the best thing I did was do all the research I could on what made a winning cover. I was a fanatic researcher at a focus groups. So I hired a, a woman who was an expert in Gen Y, Gen X to tell me everything I needed to know. I did all sorts of ratings on every single issue, so I had a sense of what sells. And I made mistakes, but I was able to increase the circulation by 30% during my tenure. A lo- in in part by figuring out what worked. And I remember one time somebody expressed an annoyance about how, how large my newsstand bonus was one year, and I thought, that's a good sign. Yeah.
0: What do you say to critics who say magazines such as Cosmo encourage women to be focused on their appearance and reinforce gender stereotypes?
1: <laughs> well, um, I think that, I guess for me, I'm, I'm interested in fashion and beauty. That's That to me matters because it we we women enjoy it but also we are judged on our imper- our appearance fair or not and i think when you're willing to accept that it gives you a leg up in terms of gender bias cosmo to me was an incredibly empowering magazine we when i was there at least we ran nothing we did not ran, run a single dieting article the entire time i was there i felt that's stupid to say to women they should they should feel comfortable in their own skin anything i wrote about plastic surgery was simply about uh, anything that might really be a problem, some deformity we, we, I constantly advocated for women not to have breast implants. I just felt that was just sending the wrong message. And we, we constantly advocated for women to enjoy their lives, enjoy their careers, ask for what they wanted, and see the world as their oyster. So I think sometimes Cosmo looks like something else from the outside. But for the readers who read it, they just wrote to us constantly saying, thank you for telling me how to live my best life.
0: You said the desire to be perfect only slows women down. How?
1: <laughs> well, sometimes, and I think this is a good girl instinct, we, we work too hard on stuff and try to get it perfect before getting it out there. And as a lot of people, particularly with startups know, once you, if you get it out there, you can get feedback and you can see if it resonates. So part of what you want to do is see the response. So I wouldn't advocate going out with half-baked ideas, but they don't have to be fully baked. You don't want to perfect things so much that you miss launching something when it's fresh and new. You really have to eventually say, give yourself a deadline and get it to your boss, get it out there, and then see the response
0: also said women need to stop apologizing for making lots of money. What do you
1: mean by that? In general, women seem to do a lot of apologizing. We we apologize when we pitch an idea at a meeting. We say things like, uh, I still have to do a little work on this, but, or this may not be a perfect idea, but. And I think we feel apologetic about sometimes going after certain things, owning our ambition. We don't want to come right out and say how how successful we are because we're afraid it's going to sound too braggy.
0: You have a pension, you said. What type of investor are you?
1: I would say that I'm a long-game investor that – probably the best advice i ever got was from my dad when i was like in my 20s he said something about well now you're going to have to start saving for retirement i was like what you know i'm 23 years old but i i was a saver i married a saver and i invested in the market and never panicked during the bad times and boy, it really paid off ultimately. And so I would just say long game. Now, once in a while, I guess I've been pretty not a huge risk taker, but once in a while, just for the hell of it, I'll, I'll do a risk. And I've also tried to really diversify too.
0: It's the worst financial advice you heard.
1: I would say the worst financial advice was when I was up for a contract negotiation. There was a a guy I was using as a financial advisor who'd been affiliated with this company I was in, and he really suggested I go full throttle and ask for some things that I think his, he was not so attuned to what was going on at that time. I think it made me look kind of stupid for some of the things I was asking for. And that just reminded me of how important it is to really do your prep before any kind of negotiation. I I spoke to someone at the Kellogg School not long ago, who's an expert on negotiation, when I was researching the book. And she she said, you know, one of the mistakes women sometimes make about negotiating, because it can make us nervous, is we don't, do as much prep work as we should.
0: Do you think print magazines are going to be around in five years?
1: I don't read any anymore. Uh, the only thing I read, there's two magazines I read that are still in print. One of them is Harvard Business Review. I just find I like to take it on the the train with me. And uh, the other is Writer's Digest. And that's pretty much it. And they kind of reflect both both sides of my life because I I write murder mysteries too. And I would say that the, the numbers are terrible these days. And I don't think those readers are going to w- the websites of the magazines. I mean, some of them, I think what Vanity Fair has done with their websites, great, New York Magazine. But not all of them have done a good job. So I think a few select print magazines will be around, maybe decorating, shelter magazines and some food magazines. But it's hard for me to imagine because when I look at my daughter, who's 28, and so many of the young women I mentor, uh they, they're just not reading them. Or when I speak at a college, they just, no one is reading print. Time now for your secrets. I'm Kate White. My money secret, save, save, save. Even if at times you have to live a little below your means.
0: This episode was produced by Tanya Bustos with special help from J.R. Whalen. John Wardock is the executive producer of WSJ Podcasts. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.
1: What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.